Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. Good evening. Welcome to Teachers Talk Radio once again with The Late Show with John B. <clears throat> Who will be joining us imminently? Uh, it's still time for me to, to say a welcome if you're listening back to this. Um, it, it's great that you've chosen to spend a little bit of time with us uh, wherever you are or whatever time it is that you're listening back. Um, this show is brought to you in association with two amazing companies. The first one is the Happy Confident Company. You can find out more about them by going back to our Listen Back page on the website. And you can find out more on the show that we did last Thursday that was myself and Poppy Gibson. It's available on all good podcast platforms. And it's called 10 Minutes Wellbeing a Day, um, which sounds like it's uh, perhaps a little bit, um, uh, what would you say, a little bit of a catchphrase, but it's not. Trust me, if you go back to the website and have a listen back to it, it's a really good conversation about all things well-being. Uh, so that's the Happy Confident Company. And also, we are sponsored by Pearson. Um, and you'll be finding out more about them later on in this show. So I'm now going to pass over to John. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Late Show with John B. It's wonderful to be back after um, a short hiatus. Um, I am delighted tonight that uh, I can introduce a very special guest, someone who I spoke to uh, just last week, actually, as a kind of uh, prelude to our conversation this evening. Um, and it's it's a bit of a, a varied one tonight. We're going to be talking um, about uh, what it means to be an anti-racist educator, um, mental health and well-being in schools. We're going to be talking about trauma-informed processes behaviour management, and we're going to throw in a little bit of mathematics for good measure as well. Um, so a really sort of packed show of full of different things um, that'll, that'll uh, have something for everyone. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to hand over to my special guest um, who will introduce themselves. Over to you. Hi, I'm Manal Siddiqui. And um, this, uh, I'm going to go into my 30th year of teaching, actually. I started in 1994 in the primary sector. So I was teaching for nine years in a, a primary school. And then um, I'm now in my 20th year uh, within the higher education sector. 
director in initial teacher education and primary maths is my main role but I also teach on professional studies and um, if we get past the first item uh, <laughs> we'll be lucky <laughs> there's a lot to talk about <laughs> thank you welcome uh, Minaz it's, it's lovely to speak with you tonight um, just before we get going then um, just to kind of ease us into our discussion and conversation tonight um, I started um, a few weeks back talking about um, how we might uh, well I'm sure I'm sure listeners are familiar with uh, a podcast called Desert Island Discs. Uh, this is a little section I like to call Desert Island Desks. So my first question to you, Minaz, is what three teaching things would you take with you to a desert island? Okay. Um, well, I only saw this um, later on, actually, um, when I was looking at uh, the questions. Um, that we thought we'd, we'd discuss to, today. And um, I do like to think differently. So I'm afraid it might not be quite what you're after here. Okay. Um, but if I was on a desert island, um, I think my survival was important um, to be able to go on to teach anything. So I've got, I've looked at it in that sort of perspective. And uh, I did do forest school training. I tried to keep that quiet just um, in case anyone asked me to do more uh, <laughs> um, a, a few years ago. So I'd want to take tools that would include a knife, but I've got a purpose for that as well. Um, tarpaulin and, and something to make a fire. <laughs> I don't know if these are the sort of things you're after. Um, okay. Okay, so, so the tools can actually be used um, as equipment to make resources anyway. So being a maths person, um, I wouldn't want to take anything like Dean's equipment or Numicon or when I can make my own counting resources from natural resources, if that makes sense. Oh, OK. Yeah. So do you see what I mean? So I wouldn't want to take plastic things with me when I've got natural resources around me and they would be multi-purpose as well because I'd want to be look hunting obviously hunter-gatherer in me uh, I'd want to be able to survive as well on this island am I looking at this in a different way than maybe you you thought I should be answering it or is it I'll carry on anyway yeah for shelter and clearly <laughs> uh, clearly I'd like something to make fire because I think that's really important as well if you're if you're on an island. I did also want fresh water, but I thought I was pushing it there. Um, if it was to do with resources as well, I know that a lot of teachers want Pritstick, don't they? That's That seems to be the big thing on Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. But I thought, you see, if you're on a desert island, it depends on what sort of uh, environment you've got. Perhaps tree sap could offer that um, glue. But what would you need that for anyway? You've got sand where you can write on sand, you can scratch onto rocks and and if that's that's a teaching resource. So I think sometimes we we can make resources out of what we have because that happens in some countries around the world anyway, you know. So it's what resources you have. And the best teaching resource is the teacher, really. I think I, um, I think it's a it's a certainly a, a unique way of answering that question and a very um very literal way of answering it as well. Yeah, just literal survival is is what's needed. And um, thank you. I mean, it's it's a bit of a ridiculous question to ask, but um, I think it it reveals a little bit about the person that we're talking to. I think it might. 
one. <laughs> You're not I do, I do think differently one. than a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> just before we begin then, um, this uh, I'm just going to read out from our sponsor this evening, uh, Pearson at Excel's new stu- student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs um, caters to all learners regardless of their background ability or reason for studying it's rooted in learned language knowledge their assessments are transparent accessible and allow students to showcase their language skills through inclusive and relatable content the new Pearson mfl gcses build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding and an appreciation of the wider world and listeners you can find out more at Pearson.com forward slash MFL. So, without further ado, let's dive in. So, Manners, tonight um, we're going to be talking about what an anti-racist educator is. So, the first question is very straightforward. What does it actually mean to be an anti-racist educator? Okay, so I think, I, you know, I could spend ages talking about this, Um and I know we've got other questions to get to today, and it's something that I feel very strongly about. Sure, take your time. Yeah, I suppose my identity is important here as well, but I'd hope I'd still have as much passion to be an anti-racist, or as I often say, an anti-prejudiced educator. Um, it's important, and it's the duty of a teacher to not discriminate against any of the protected characteristics of which race, which we can discuss later maybe is uh, a social construct anyway but there is um we're not to discriminate against um people because of perceived race um so for me i I think my identity is important um so i have my own um perspective on this and as you can tell from my name manal siddiqui when you when you see my name in print you might be wondering uh, what what heritage I may be and um, so my dad was actually born in India and he moved to Pakistan in the partitioning he's very proud to be called Pakistani and my mum's English and has an Irish father had an Irish father so I've got um, a mixed heritage if that's even the right word to use now heritage I've stopped saying mixed race now because the word race and actually what that means um because we are a human species so so my identity I think is important because I have got lived experience of racism but that's very specific to who I am um, because often it's when people find out my name rather than when they first see me and sometimes people don't know until I tell them my name so that's when I can uh, experience it so to be an anti-racist educator, first of all, um, it's it's a verb, it's an active role, it's um, important. You, you might say that I'm not racist, but then that's on a scale of being racist if you look at um, what actually um, being anti-racist is, which is being a very active role. It's, it's taking part actively to address um, issues uh, where there could be barriers to um, children uh, and educators regarding uh, achievements basically Um, so it's an active role to really know what you have to do to ensure that your curriculum is accessible 
for all of you, for all of your children. Um, I suppose you've heard the term decolonizing the curriculum as well. So it's that idea of looking yeah. at, uh, yeah, looking at the curriculum. I had to unpick what that actually meant as well um, mm -hmm. for a while. And, and simply in terms of a teacher really in the classroom, what can you do? Because there's structural racism anyway. Um, in, in the school, what you can do is look at, um, look at your curriculum, look at things from not just a Western or Eurocentric viewpoint. Um, and I think it's really important to be an anti-racist educator is knowing the importance of why it's important as well, because there, you know, there is evidence of achievement um, within children and, and barriers that are in place that hinder achievement of certain ethnicities as the government data um, uh, classifies it. Um, and to be able to know the importance as well is that impact on society, you know, the bigger picture of um, what a good education, uh, an anti-racist education can do for the future, if that makes sense. Um, so I suppose, first of all, you have to identify it's a very, it's quite a, it can be quite challenging, really, that everyone, whoever you are, you have to sort of identify and address your own biases that you have and your own stereotypes that you hold. And the biases that uh, can be, um, you know, you talk about implicit bias later on, but it's that idea of being for or against a person or, or a group. And that can be developed from your upbringing, from the perceived wisdom that you have and the beliefs that you grow up with that you think are correct. So depending on how you what you've learned early days in your formative years, um, you have to identify, actually, have I have I um, got biases there that I've learned? Hello, can you hear me? Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear both of you. Um, I'm not sure what's going on there, John, but I can hear you. Can oh, you hear my me? apologies. I, I really dipped out there. Um, I could... Sorry that about could that. Be your, that could be your Wi-Fi, that, John. Oh. Because I can hear the guests. Can you hear me? Time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I am rattling on a bit, John. Uh, I've got up to the point where I'm talking about it's important to address your own biases and stereotypes and your biases you might have developed you over me? your formative years. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, John, but I think um, potentially your signal's dipping in and out because we, we can hear you and we can hear the guests. Do you okay. want to try um, rejoining the space and then maybe just making sure you're as close to your router as possible? Is that John or me? Uh, not you. John, John, you're fine, I think. I, I can hear you loud. And, I can hear both of you loud and clear, but it just seems like it's dipping in and out. Um, I, I'll ask you a question while we're waiting for John to, to return. Um, so yeah. you, you sort of, I've just been listening to the first sort of few minutes. Um, yeah. What, you mentioned sort of the barriers um, yeah. in, in, in place. For, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure the precise sentence. I can't remember what you said, but it was something along the lines of the barriers in place for students from ethnic minorities to achieve, I think was broadly the phrase. Um, could, could you tell us maybe a bit more about those barriers and, and what they are? Okay, so so if, um, so if you're in, in a class, in a classroom, you want to feel a sense of belonging. Um, so barriers can actually be that um, curriculum and curriculum choices. So it's quite important that you really know your class 
and you know about your families and your communities. So when you are choosing books to read, for example, or you're looking at different foods, you have to really think about your community. Um, I mean, this is me just thinking off the top of my head at what those barriers might be. Um, the barriers can also be sort of very subtle barriers that are part of the bigger structural racism and policies and practices mm. they can be barriers and i know we talked about uh, we haven't talked about but the the word and the language of institutional racism um you know is still used whereby and that is where you know schools do have to look at their policies and practices they do have to consider is this fair for all of my students? Um, you know, so if I'm planning an exam, is it landing at the time of Ramadan, for example? So these are sort of barriers that can can happen, and that's um, that's a bigger picture sometimes. Um, yeah, other no, barriers. I, yeah, I think that hopefully you can hear me now. Sorry yeah. about. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think it's, a, it's an interesting point to pick up on. We were just talking about kind of what an anti-racist educator is. Yeah. And um, I just want to kind of try and focus your, your thoughts around um, this idea of implicit bias and what that could look like in classrooms. Yeah, so when you say implicit bias, um, you, you've got to think of, I suppose, um, so it might be that children if you think about children if they've got an implicit bias that idea of a certain belief um that's uh, that basically it i mean from looking at the definition it, it sort of it occurs automatically it's unintentional but it can affect the judgment and decisions and it's not just children can who can have those implicit biases about other people or the cultures or the religions um, teachers can have implicit bias too and that's why it's important that teachers address that um, uh, we show our students sometimes videos um, just to to show them how it can happen and this is when black and white teachers were watching four children and one of the children was a black boy and they had to look at the behavior of the children and when they scanned where the eyes were actually focused on all of the teachers were mainly focused on the black boy. So already they were looking for certain behaviours from a certain child. Mm. Um, so we all have those sort of implicit bias. And I think what, what we have to do about it is start to really question ourselves and think, what is it that we do? And it's quite a, it can be quite uncomfortable for educators mm -hmm. to do that because it's embedded in how we might think about certain people, certain groups of people through sometimes what the media shows us, because we know that that can be skewed, um, what we see on television, what we hear, how we've been brought up. I hope that makes sense. It, it, it does. And I'm wondering if you've got any sort of advice or resources or you can signpost people as to how they might go about um, kind of reflecting on the implicit bias that yeah. they have within themselves? Well, I, I mean, it's quite tricky, but I do know I was looking at something the other day and I think it was in one of the books I was reading. I think it's by Samira Chowdhury. 
um, or one of the people that I've been reading, um, that's called Equitable Education. And she links to, I think it's her book, and if it's not, it might be Aisha Thomas's book. I'll, I'll mention everybody in a minute. Um, and it links to a Harvard website, actually, where you can have a look at, um, it, it's a little test that you do, and it shows you where your biases might be. So mm-hmm. if I can find the link to that, I can I can add it at some point to the to a Twitter feed or something. But that's quite interesting. The other thing is, I suppose you just have to be very very conscious. And um, it's we talk about unconscious bias, and that's when you're doing things you don't really know. But then I think what you have to do is start to be consciously biased. So even if it's looking at um, who do I question in the class, who asks, who answers my questions in the class, because and this is looking at maybe a dominance of boys um, within a classroom. Do you respond to them? Who do you focus your questions more on? Who do you pick to do certain activities? And I think you've got to consciously um, observe yourself, really, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. That's something that, you know, I'm just thinking of on the top of my head what you have to do. Yeah. And I think once you start to consciously think about your choices, you might realise how you can make biased choices sometimes. Who do you ask to help you? Who do you ask to take the register back to the office? Who's got the roles and responsibilities in the classroom? Why have you made those choices? Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? So I feel like everybody should have a role in the classroom. Yeah, and, and, and really kind of that will require a lot of teachers to do a lot of soul searching, I would have thought, and really question their their reasoning and rationale behind um, yeah. perhaps what you might what people might consider as very simple, straightforward um decisions that are made but actually what what sits behind those yeah. might be as you say a little more um uncomfortable i know um, yeah so it's like it's like sometimes people say well they're sensible they'll, they'll be good to do that job and i think well i want to be able to trust this person too do you know what i mean it's always seeing the good in everybody always find the good in every child sure and i think yeah. it's important to model that to the children in your class as well because they look at you and then mirror how you are um go on and anyway i'm going on no no it's fine it's it's really interesting stuff um you mentioned um manaz about the uh you mentioned equity and equity is something that's very kind of close to my heart in education Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm, i'm wondering what your thoughts are on how educators might create a more equitable learning environment for all of the students yeah, so I think um, sometimes it's that idea of, um, and I just asked someone this the other day just to see what they said, um, and it was it was a student, not one that I, I taught, but um, it's that idea of, um, uh, I actually said, you know, what do you think um, it means to be an anti-racist educator? <laughs> it's my little bit of research, and they said they actually said treating everybody equally, and I said, oh right, okay, well that's interesting. I said because. Um, if you've seen the little picture by, I think it's Ang- Angus Maguire, and he's got three children behind the fence. You might know this picture. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's been going wild, hasn't it, on Twitter? And so the idea of yeah, equality is that everybody we give everybody the same, but it doesn't actually offer equity. So um, depending on what your children's needs actually are, so again, it's about knowing your children and what maybe scaffolding they might 
need to be able to access in this case education in the in the picture it's about looking over the fence at a baseball game and being able to see that and be able to be a part of it but actually it's about um even better if you remove whatever the barrier might be um to to the learning whether that be language for example or uh, choices of resources or how you are as a teacher and your expectations um, and your beliefs. Um, so they, that could be what you need to do as a teacher is think about, well, what are the barriers? Um, and it might be more than that. It might be to do with uh, parental engagement even. So there's so many different reasons that there may be barriers. It could be that children are being bullied Mm. and and that's a huge barrier um so it's finding out maybe what those things are and and it's quite hard to remove certain barriers um but that's something to be to be looked at by an educator so it's the the teaching job is more than just teaching as we all know it, yeah. it it's uh, you know what it's so complicated and complex and I don't think everyone really understands that do they when mm. when you hear how some people talk about teachers it is a, a wonderful wonderful job but um as professionals there's so many um complex aspects to it um besides getting that curriculum covered as it were <laughs> Yeah, um, some some really interesting points there, and I'm sure um, listeners who are either listening live or at a later time um, will certainly be able to reflect on some of the things um, which we've we've started to talk around um, tonight. Uh, just a, a quick word from one of our sponsors then. So this show has brought to you in partnership with the Happy Confident Company, who provide clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programmes to help your pupils thrive in only 10 minutes a day. Visit happyconfident.com to find out more and enjoy the rest of the podcast. What that now means, we can seamlessly segue into the next kind of item that we were going to talk about today. Um, and I know that it's an item that's uh, equally as close to your heart. Uh, and it's around kind of mental health and well-being in schools. And I'm sure lots of listeners um, will be kind of at the forefront of this in classrooms uh, across the world as, as teachers and educators and institutions deal with um, the fallout of COVID and continue to try and um, support children in many different ways that can. So obviously, um, from your perspective, the first question is around um, what, is, what do you feel some of the challenges are at the moment that students face in terms of mental health okay sorry yeah i know i just realized though, while you were talking that i didn't really mention that there's also this aspect of it's not just about race and uh, intersectionality and and that's something else that i could have talked about there uh, as barriers um okay so moving on to sorry talking about um mental health and you you mentioned the word students you see so yeah. I was thinking, are you talking about students, as in university students, or you talk about children? I mean, I can I, I can talk about children in in primary school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so so basically, I like I'm thinking of the bigger picture here, and um, I'm just thinking of the world that we're living in at the moment, and actually, the world that children are living in is 
dare I say it's quite a hostile world. Mm. <laughs> that might sound awful. Um, but, you know, we're in the middle of a financial crisis. There is poverty. There's hunger. We have children that we know come to school hungry. So that is certainly going to affect mental health. And that's probably related to financial crisis. But also then we have to look at the mental health of our families as well. Um, there's um, maybe dissatisfaction with um, how the country's being ruled um, since Brexit actually happened. You know, there's been a lots of change in the world. Um, COVID-19, as you said, and even um, the murder, you know, of, of George Floyd, that um, brought about a lot of change. Uh, and yeah. We were in lockdown at the time and it was a new sort of like wave of this activism to restart our, you know, this the anti-racist practices that I was just talking about. Uh, and it's like, well, how have we changed since Stephen Lawrence, you know? So I felt, I felt really quite, I don't know the, the, the feeling that I had, but all I know is that our children have been through a lot in the last few years. And um, that, that's bound to have had some effect on health and well-being and socially as well, maybe not mixing in the same way. There was a lot of low-level maybe anxiety throughout COVID. People were actually worried and there were lots of things that happened to specific families. Um, so I think you've got all of this bigger picture of what's mm. happening um, and then I think you have to look at the school level as well and we have to look at our curriculum and think about how formal it can be very early days for our children, how packed the curriculum is, how our teachers have have got a large workload and hopefully, you know, people are trying to do things about that and how you manage that um, and the expectations of teachers. It's, you know, there's very high expectations of teachers and, and what they do and it's not just teaching as we've sort of looked at here it's looking after our children's mental health but of course looking after their own mental health first and schools being very aware that we have to look after our teachers I did a little google search actually the other day when I was thinking of the happiness of our children mm. and um, in comparison to some other countries the happiest apparently this is according to a UNICEF research uh, probably a few years ago now though but we're in the Netherlands and it says their happiness is attributed to a non-competitive, low stress school culture and a good work life balance for parents, among other reasons. So maybe maybe we can learn a little bit from some of the curriculums and cultures. And I know as a initial teacher educator, we often look at, for example, Netherlands or Sweden or Finland for the sort of outdoor learning that takes place there and how important being outside is. Um, mm. And that's why a lot of schools I know uh, look to doing some forest school experiences. But and I think that should be for everybody, though. I think it should be for all children. And um, I think we have to look at our curriculum. Is it fit? Is it fit for purpose? Is it fit for our children to develop into the children they need to be for their mm -hmm. future roles? For to be, and I never use the word resilient, but um, and I'm just wondering how how resilient do our children have to be? Actually, can we not? support them a little bit better so they don't always have to be as resilient as we we think just 
do you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. um, we always talk about. Yes, we want our children to be resilient. Um, I think they've been pretty resilient over the last few years. I think maybe we need to be kind and we need to look at our policies and practices in school. And this will lead on to some of the other discussion later about how we manage behaviour in school. What's our expectation? What do we understand by behaviours? Stop over-testing. What are we doing? We've got like year ones doing phonics tests. I know I shouldn't be laughing, but it's like, oh my gosh, can they not just play? Um, recently, um, you know, my son had a half term, and I know that schools are under pressure, and I know that there's, and that's the thing, they're under pressure because of because of testing and because of league tables and because of other outside inspectors coming in, etc. But in a half term, can they just play? Let Let's play. And um, they've had that taken away from them for through COVID lockdown. So I'd say, let them have a holiday. Let them play. Let's yes, education is important. But you probably heard a lot of the cognitive science that's um, that schools are looking at, where they talk about retrieval practice and reviewing and how children learn, and we want the learning to stick. But if we teach an overpacked curriculum, nothing's sticking anywhere quite yeah. frankly uh, I can think of places just uh, I better not say that um, but, <laughs> you, do you see what I mean we're, we're doing so much and we're moving so quickly through the curriculum and we've got to do it and it's like a pressure to finish this we've got to finish this otherwise we can't do the next bit well then just take a bit longer that's what teaching for mastery actually is all about yeah it's about having a a good pace isn't it so that we're not yeah. racing through the curriculum so, i think what you're what you're describing really there is how packed the curriculum is with yeah. with everything that goes on all of the accountability how teachers and children are measured um yeah. I wonder from your experience and discussions with your students, kind of what what would your advice to teachers be who are in the classroom day in, day out to support with their own mental health and the mental health of children? What kind of things can physically be done, can actually be done in classrooms, perhaps tomorrow or in September that could really support and really help them? Now, do you know what? This is a really difficult question because it's not a quick fix. Um, so, you know, it's not like putting a plaster on something, is it? So mental health, it's really quite complicated. My dad was actually a psychiatrist and uh, that's quite interesting. Um, but so, so I'm quite interested myself because mental health is something that it fluctuates mm-hmm. all day. You know, and something can happen and suddenly there's a dip and then something else can happen and there could be an improvement. I think, first of all, um, teachers need to be able to manage their own mental health. Um, and with with our students, we look at that early days, really, about um, how to keep mentally healthy. It's about... Um, so what we do is look at healthy... I mean, I should be looking at this a little bit more, really. Healthy eating, healthy lifestyle. And this is a difficult conversation to have with um, year ones coming into <laughs> into their first year at university. But because we know what that first year could be like with all the excitement of meeting new peoples and all of the um, 
freshers weeks and freshers activities but it's knowing how to how to manage yourself how to try and have a good sort of work-life balance and we look at that early days you've got to have some time to yourself you've got to have a time when you switch off um, and that can be really hard to do, um, especially if you've got an overactive brain. I know I find it very difficult, but yes, I suppose you can look at doing yoga, mindfulness exercises. Again, nature is really important if you like those sort of things or doing what you find will, you know, will switch you off from actually work all the time and knowing that there's got to be a time when you stop Um but also that's not just for the teacher though to manage because that's got to be a whole school ethos as yeah. well um it's all very well saying this but we hear people talking about toxic work environments and if that's the expectation that you're in at seven you leave at six that's not a healthy expectation for anybody mm. um and if that's what schools are expecting and sometimes um a teacher might expect someone else to work like them it mm-hmm. might suit that person, but if it doesn't suit another person, they might want to work at a different time. You should never impose how you want to work on, on anybody else. So, yeah, I think teachers need to find strategies to look after their own well-being um, because it is it is really important. So that, that eating healthily as well as you can, um, having your own leisure time, having interests, and learning how to switch off can be very, very difficult. Trying to get a good night's sleep is meant to be so, you know, it is so good for you. And and exercise, that's what everyone will tell you. That's what your doctor will tell you. Yeah. Um, it's you know, it's, it's really refreshing to hear someone <laughs> not say that you you put um, a cake on the staff room table once what? every term on a Friday. Um, <laughs> because, you know, for, for some schools, it can, it can be quite tokenistic. And I think talking there around kind of a whole school approach, there yeah. are things absolutely... Um, that that schools can do, I agree. But I think what the the crux of the matter here is is that it's very personal to each yeah. individual teacher. Yeah. And you know, for my well being, I might like going out for a walk with the dog. But for another teacher, that could be something very different. Um, and I think you know, we schools really ought to have that that flexibility um, of their thinking. And like you say, not not to have every teacher in at seven o'clock in the morning and yeah. leaving at six o'clock because that's the sure fire away. Um, leading to burnout and I know a lot of schools are doing this now I know a lot of schools are really addressing their teacher well-being but like any policy that's in place that says we have a teacher well-being um, policy it that's all right being there the policy that's great it's got to be acted out that's the thing isn't it it's it's all very well it's in print but it's got to be acted out hasn't it like an anti-racist policy like any policy it's all right it can be in print but it's got to be acted out and of course I'm speaking as a woman here of a certain age and people will laugh if I start to mention the menopause but I'm sorry it's a real big issue out there and we know a lot of the teaching profession are females so please I would say to people to look after do look after all of you all of your staff but it's knowing um that certain adjustments may need to be made um, for certain staff. And um, I know that just because you work in a certain way doesn't mean everybody else has to work that way. Even if you send an email on a Friday at five o'clock with, oh, don't worry about this till Monday, you've still sent it. So don't send it. 
Do you see what I mean? Why yeah. did you bother sending it then? Send it so that it's set up to go on the Monday so people aren't worrying all weekend, Absolutely. you know. Um, I've had many an email where I worry, and I've worried unnecessarily about things, um, and that's because of previous experiences in the workplace. So it can be quite detrimental to um, your mental your mental health, actually. Um, sure, and I think but, yeah. but, you know we don't get it right all of the time, and there's a there's lessons in a lot of what we do, and and sometimes just holding your hands up and saying, do you know what, I didn't get it right that time. Mm-hmm. Apologizing, learning, moving on, reflecting um, can be a really powerful way forward. Yeah, um, I'm really fortunate to have a great team that we work with, and we we are like this. We don't get, you know what, um, we don't get told off. It's brilliant. <laughs> you know, yeah, I've heard you know people do get told off, don't they? Sometimes, and and you're an adult. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> it's like, what's going on here? So yeah, yeah so oh, I'm putting on your accent there. Um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I tend to mimic. Um, so, you know, we were talking about so the challenges. So we've got all of that sort of thing going on, and then you started to talk about. Um, I was also thinking with children as well. The challenges that's the bigger world that we live in, and teachers also have to manage theirs. But then, obviously, you've got what might then fit into the idea around trauma informed practices as well. Is that the sort of like you know school, home, and family sort of culture and well being, and and what's going on at home with any sort of you know there might be abuse, there might be. Um, other domestic violence for example you mm-hmm. might have children who are, are seeking asylum and and so on so there are other issues that um uh, issues that, that children looked after may have as well which, sure. will, which we, will obviously we said we're yeah. just nicely there in the yeah. trauma trauma and managing behavior and different approaches yeah. and i wonder if i could just focus the conversation towards kind of um our listeners and giving them an understanding of what what we mean by trauma-informed approaches in schools? Yeah, so I'm not going to lie here. This is something that um, I wanted to learn more about myself this year. So it's, it's not that I don't know that these things happen, um, but I kept on hearing people talking about trauma-informed practices. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, I need to find out a little bit more. Um, about trauma-informed practices as an educator to be able to look at what we do in initial teacher education that's above and beyond some of the behaviour management um, strategies that you might see. Um, So so basically, um, so trauma-informed practices basically are... um, do you know what? It's about just being very human, but also it's about knowing your children and knowing if they've had any trauma. So it's really important uh, that you know your class and you might and you know which children are looked after. You might need to know some of the history of what's been going on and why maybe the children have been fostered. It's important to know the children. They might have specific education health plans. Um it's um so it could be i've got a little list here as well because sometimes i need reminding um so it could be children who are no longer living with their birth families for whatever reason there might have been trauma there there might have been bereavement and children may be adopted so there are issues here of um insecure attachments Mm -hmm. um 
the idea of maybe, um, oh, I mentioned about family bereavement, um, child um, asylum seekers, refugees. So if you've got children in your class, sometimes I hear the students telling me that they've got a, um, some children with English as an additional language. And I say, oh, that's very interesting. What can you tell me about the child? Um, so we don't group all children together, but what can you tell me where they've come from? And if they say a country that I know, for example, had, um, is in the middle of a war, you know, um, it's what, do you know what experiences they went through? Oh, yes, they've mm-hmm. come with their grandparent or um, they've left their parents behind. You know, there's all these stories that you hear or some of them are travelling and they're going to join a family later. Um, and you just think, now, this is really important, isn't it? Because there's going to be trauma there. And um, and with that trauma, it's about that development as well of the brain. So I'm learning here. So yeah. as I talk, I'm sort of trying to explain things and I'm still learning myself. Um, because how then children develop will... Um, will have an impact on their behaviours in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So, so as a teacher, you need to be very thoughtful and considerate about how you are behaving and how you set up your classroom so that you're not triggering any sort of um, trauma responses, if that makes sense, any behaviours. Yeah. So children kicking out and um, what we call acting outside it's sort of like you might have heard of the window of tolerance mm. um so it's that idea that we've all got a window of tolerance but it, if you've had trauma in your life that might be quite a narrow sort of window so um you can things that maybe could trigger you can cause you to be hyper arousal it's called the hyper arouse where you might fight or flight or the opposite which is the hypo arousal where you might freeze and that sort of depression or or or, or block out mm. um and a flop response even it can be where it's just a the opposite of hyper arousal basically and that can be the response of a child so if you're quite novice or if you've been teaching for a long time sometimes you think oh gosh what happened there you mm-hmm. know it could be um a response that you were not expecting and um, and that's why i mentioned in a little conversation earlier about a lot of behaviour systems in school are still behaviourist, yeah. where there's rewards and sanctions. Mm-hmm. And even the very word sanction, I think is really dated. I think, what, what are we sanctioning children? We're sanctioning them. And actually, sometimes we're even taking playtime off our children. And it's like, can you imagine if you were a member of staff and someone said, you didn't wash your mug? after playtime so you're going to miss break tomorrow yeah can you imagine if we treated adults in that in the way that we feel that we can treat children is that not a power thing and it makes me always wonder why we would do some of the things so just putting a name on a board to a child who's experienced trauma or any child is humiliating but it can just take them out of that window of tolerance um, and I think as well, given, you know, I think it's interesting that it, it affects the um, the brain and the development yeah. of children. Um, are there any kind of specific strategies that educators can use to support children who've experienced trauma? 
Yeah, so so really it is about thinking um, as a whole school, really. It's got to be a whole school approach. Um, all stakeholders need to know. They need to know how, how you're talking to children. It's really important. Um, and I'll tell a true story because I'm not perfect. Um, <laughs> I'd like to think I was. I'm not perfect. And you do pick up things in your life. I used to be a bit of a pointer. I used to, I used to point quite a lot. And that's quite aggressive, someone mm-hmm. said to me. <laughs> someone said, you do know you're, you're pointing. It was, it was one of my head teachers early days. I went, oh, I, I pointed at him, am I? <laughs> you know, I thought, yes, I do that. And mm-hmm. I, I stopped doing it. I thought, no, you're right. That is, um, that's quite an aggressive sort of um, body language there. But I, I will address that. And it's important that, you know, I took that on board. I didn't take offence. I thought about it and I thought, you're, you're not wrong. I've learned a lot about my behaviour and how that would impact on children's behaviour. So mm. it takes for you as a, an educator to be honest with yourself. And I, mm. I've had to be honest with myself um, because I'm quite demonstrative and I can be quite excitable. Um, and not everybody likes that. Some of my students don't like it. Uh, mm-hmm. and, but I have to be me as well, you know. Um, but I've realised that, you know, sometimes you have to think about how you conduct yourself because you are a role model. Sure. Yeah. So it's about showing that, you know, if something happens, it doesn't go quite your way or, if, you know, it's showing and modelling to children how you might respond. Um, so, you know, the EEF has lots of documents and one of them is about self-regulation and metacognition. I think lots of schools are looking at that now about how to regulate and um, yeah. how to self-regulate. So looking at strategies for how to um, look at your own sort of behaviours. And it starts with the teacher. So yeah. I think that's that's important. Um, teachers need to know actually the effect of trauma on the brain and I know that Paul Dix did a lot of training early days on behaviour he talked about the and I can't say this it's the part of the brain that they call the reptilian part of the brain and mm. um, I always pronounce it incorrectly um amygdala I think I said it right that time okay. um, yeah and how um if a child feels that they're threatened because if you're if you've experienced trauma you're sort of in a bit of a survival sort of mode um that part of the brain is triggered which maybe then won't let me think in a rational way and I might kick out and I might behave in a certain way mm. um it's a sort of survival response mm-hmm. it's that it is often it's the fight or flight you might know the feet you'll know the feeling yourself I suppose and there's a huge release of adrenaline sometimes if you feel fear yeah. um and children can be hyper sort of sensitive to that and it's that part of the brain that can be activated so if you um even if you're looking at a child think about what your face is saying i always say to, to our students that and it's important but they might have trauma themselves but yeah and i think that kind of yeah. links back to what you were saying earlier about um kind of the teachers being a mirror and reflecting yeah. the, the values the ethos of the school yeah. um and and how we respond and you know teachers are tired this time yes. of year um, how we respond can have a huge impact. So yeah. I guess my next kind of train of thinking is, aside from not pointing at children, <laughs> um, what other kind of common behaviour management strategies would you say are really useful in the classroom? 
Okay, so when we talk about behaviour management, um, all right, I'll talk about behaviour management now, as in we look at, first of all, we'll, we might look at classroom management and what's your classroom looking like? Mm -hmm. um, so for some children, uh, it can be a trauma trigger if you have a very sort of like messy environment. Mm. Um, unfortunately, that was what my class used to look like years ago. But it's, <laughs> it might seem unsafe to a child who's had trauma because it looks chaotic um if you've been in a, in a country where you know your house has been um destroyed and you've got this chaos around you and this rubble if your classroom's looking a little bit like that it's looking very disorganized that that's one thing that could cause trigger so it's quite nice for some children to know that they're in a safe place so that mm -hmm. your classroom is a safe place so it's more than just what it looks like it's that ethos that you know all your children, um, you know all their names, um, you know what they they like, their likes, their dislikes, you have thought about seating plans, um, everyone knows where their equipment might be, everybody's got a pencil, everybody knows where their pencil are, they know that they can go and get those things if they need to. Um, so I think that's really important that a teacher, and I know it might sound and teachers are going yeah of course we know that yeah but yeah. it is that's really important that's great and a lot of teachers are doing this aren't they and that's already part of what you would call a trauma-informed um practice so i know so many schools now are looking as well at well is my classroom really busy because some some classrooms have got quite a lot of displays around and is that actually over stimulus for some children possibly yeah so it, it is thinking about does does it look warm? Does this classroom look warm? I've seen some schools um, changing even the sort of furniture as well and having carpeted classrooms because a scraping of chairs can be quite loud, quite noisy. Um, mm -hmm. And that's for some of your neurodiverse children as well will struggle with that mm -hmm. um, scraping sound of, of, of chairs. And you might find children going under under the table. Mm. Um just to to try and get a safe space um, and i think what we're really exploring here is about how um we i think perhaps maybe 20 30 years ago teachers might react to behavior yes. this sounds to me a lot more as though um this is really uh, some subtle strategies in preventing any yes. kind yeah, of these, these are preventative any... yeah so, so yeah, you, you're exactly right. So if you look in some of the literature about behaviour management, it talks about preventative. Mm. So, so setting up your classroom, having that sort of organisation, all of these things are preventative. Being knowledgeable as a teacher, having really good subject knowledge, being interesting, listening to your children, letting them have a voice, all of these things, being, um, being well prepared, being planned so that you're not rushing around looking stressed. So if you come in and you're calm, you know what you're doing. And I'm not saying I ever behaved like this, but I, I got better. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's hard as well when you're at university and you're about to go in and someone's in the room before you. It can be quite a, a moment of handover. But in the classroom, when it's your class and you can be ready, it's, it's being ready and you're ready for the children. And even before they get in the classroom, you'll see lots of schools doing this now. And it's something, no one taught me this, but that meet and greet, I always mm. did it. I always did it with the children, especially on a Monday, I'd see the faces of the children and I'd say, good morning. 
good morning. And I'd actually say to every single child coming up the stairs. Mm. And uh, eventually you'd see a little smile, you know, good morning. And when the child who comes in a little bit later, good morning. Oh, I'm glad you're here. I was wondering where you were. You know, not you're late. You know, it's, it's, it's how you look at children and their behaviour because... Whose fault is it if they are late? You know, I'm sorry, but I can't blame a child. You know? Yeah, usually in primary school, it isn't the child who's um, at fault. Perhaps it might be different in secondary, but my experience does kind of lie and lean more towards primary. Um, so, yeah, some really interesting thoughts there around kind of preventative ways in which to... Um, yeah. Well, prevent behaviour from happening. Now, in an ideal world, all of this works, and you know, <laughs> in all school, children are happy. But if, if for example, um, a child or a group of children, or in fact a class, present as um, being particularly challenging, um, how can teachers deal that deal with that in a way that's um, effective and respectful? I guess. Yeah. Okay. So. Do you know what? Do you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking back to my experience. And I had a very, very, very challenging first class. Um, really, really quite challenging. I have to say, I, ha- I was in year five. Um, so as a NQT, as it was called then. And I had um, a lot of children who had very specific needs. I didn't have the toolbox as a an NQT. I did want to get to know the children. So what I had, my strengths were the forming, forming relationships. So I know that once you've got all this in place, where you've really got to find out who your children are, once you've made good relationships, once you've shown that you're, you're honest, you're authentic, uh, they can trust you, you're already partway there. So to get any really tricky behaviours afterwards I found that they those behaviours didn't happen as much after I had gained those preventative um, strategies but mm-hmm. if they were to happen so for newer teachers what I do say is going for for teachers who are just coming into a class and it's new and even if you supply sometimes you do have to have in that little toolkit of um, it's positive behaviour management anyway, I think, that works really well. Mm-hmm. It's knowing, you know, I don't think rewards always help. If, if you've got a relationship with a class, the reward is a smile and it, the reward is saying, you've really, really impressed me. But if children don't know you, that doesn't work because they don't know you, yeah. you know. So you can use rewards that are tangible rewards. For children, if you're, if you're struggling, I would say that you do need to have, um, you might need intervention then from someone higher up within the school to support you if you are struggling, if you're finding things quite challenging in that respect. Mm-hmm. That's where you do need to get other other support. I've told you I don't really like the word punishment. I don't. Well, I said sanction before. I don't like the word sanction. Don't like the word punishment. And I was thinking even of the word consequences to action. I think if you've got a child who's experienced trauma, I mean that's not going to be the way forward either. So maybe intervention is a better word. But you need something different if they if the children are struggling and a one size um, sort of model, as in. Um, 
a lot of the rewards and sanctions type of behaviour management strategies don't work for everybody. Mm. Um, so I don't think, I don't, I don't know if I've really got a great answer here, but I know that I always use, and I'm not saying you crack jokes wildly at all, but that idea of being authentic, having a sense of humour, um, sometimes you don't want to get into any sort of um, um, argument ever, any sort of um, with with a child because you're mm -hmm. the adult. And yeah. um, so I think it's knowing. I can see that you're. You know, it might be that you can see that the child's tired. I can see that you're. You know, you told me you were a little bit tired this morning. You know, is there anything I can do for you? It's having those sort of conversations. It's not sending a child out either, because that's also like a form of rejection, especially if they've had trauma in their life. Sure. Um, so it's very complicated. What you're asking me there is very complicated. And I think it will depend on your school. It will depend on your relationships with the class. And I'd hope that if you've got very good relationships, you could talk to family as well mm. um, and other people within the school, find out how other people deal with things look at why it might be happening is it actually not the child but it's you sometimes yeah. if you've got to look at yourself and think what did i do did i do something there have i have i caused some distress is this work too challenging is it frustrating i need yeah. to think about what i've done here so i often think you have to look at yourself and think what what can i do better um, i think that, i think you've you've hit on something quite interesting there you've talked around kind of um, the ethos of a school, the culture of a school, um, but you've also married that up with some strategies that teachers could use. And I think from, just I was reflecting on some of your responses there, and I think for me, um, the most effective uh, classes that I've taught or schools that I've taught in have put culture before the strategy rather mm -hmm. than strategy before the culture mm -hmm. and the culture of somewhere you know if you have a supply teacher in yeah. who doesn't know the children the strength of the relationship of everybody else who works within yeah. um, that school can really support um, a teacher who is unfamiliar or you know um, that kind of thing so i think i think you're right i think the culture there is the, is the key thing um of getting right and that's something that you know schools will develop over years and years and can only really be done with very experienced very knowledgeable staff um and the new staff kind of get taken along with that when they join the school and that becomes the a new culture within the school and that, I, I think it's a, an, a a really interesting point there but it does it does John, it links to everything that we've said earlier really about being an anti-racist educator thinking of trauma-informed practices if a school's got that culture an inclusive culture and that's when you're actually enacting it in everything that everybody does it's got to be everybody's got to be on board with it, mm -hmm. it it's not just your class teacher it's your learning support assistants it's it's everybody in yeah. the school and that's it's not easy it's not easy um and you know, and I'm not saying I was ever perfect myself in school. I've got a lot, I had a lot to learn. And mm -hmm. I was learning when I was actually, I could see things happening. I remember children being sent out of the classroom. And one day I saw this little boy and it was in, you know, it was around Christmas time. And, you know, there was a big Christmas tree out in the hall. And this child had been sent to do lines outside. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and this child I thought oh do you know what this is such a beautiful place for him to be underneath the Christmas tree with the lights sparkling and I thought do you know what that's a nice little safe place for you he doesn't care that he's doing lines under the Christmas tree he's having a great time <laughs> so, and I just yeah. thought, what was the purpose of you sending that child there? <laughs> you know, it's like, why have you done that? What are you doing that for? You know, it's knowing what your children, you know, knowing what the the their lives are like outside of school. And it's thinking, why would you do that? But actually, he's having a great time anyway. <laughs> I, I think just to sum up on listeners and, and people who are listening to this in the future, um, we've so far covered... Um, some topics around what it means to be an anti-racist educator, mental health and well-being in schools and, and really we've touched on trauma-informed approaches um, but through the lens of behaviour management and what kind of, how that can be done and strategies and culture uh, that lie behind that. Just for the final kind of um, 15-20 minutes or so um, we're going to touch on a subject that's very close to uh, my heart and I know it's very close to, to your heart as well uh, Manaz and it's um, it's maths so nice easy question to start with what is it that you particularly enjoy about maths? <laughs> Do you know what? I'm going to find me though now <laughs> <laughs> like watching beer in the car yeah yeah <laughs> no, there's so much that I enjoy and you put about you, you said enjoy about teaching maths but actually I enjoy learning maths as well I think to be a really good teacher of mathematics you've got to really love doing the mathematics you've got to find it exciting um and you've got to love doing puzzles and wanting to find the answer without someone telling you the answer before you which is very irritating um so what do i enjoy about teaching mathematics is that it is a challenge actually for for a teacher and i like challenges i want to i want everybody to love mathematics i want everyone to be as passionate as i am about it um because I find that we have a, a mix of students, some that, and, and I hate to say this, and I've told them that they're not allowed to ever say it, that they don't like it. And I can't even, it's hard to say that. And, mm. and, and I find it, you know, it's like, right, well, we're certainly going to change that. Or I am really good at maths, but I don't like it. Now, that worries me. Someone mm. who's really good at maths who doesn't like it. So I'm thinking, what's what's happened there? Um. So what I do enjoy is um, that there isn't, a lot of people say, I like maths because there's a correct answer, but actually there's not always a correct answer. There can be all lots of possibilities um, and lots of different ways to get to an answer um, lots of creative thinking that can happen. So that's what I like about maths. And you can have a good discussion about your method of how you work something out. Um, that's the part of maths that I like problem solving reasoning patterns mm. and puzzles that sort of non do they call it non-verbal reasoning yeah that type of thing yeah and and how do, how do we go about inspiring the next generation of teachers ect student teachers um to be effective maths teachers that's a really good question <laughs> it's um and we have to and you know part of the the requirements are that we have teachers that can motivate our pupils to learn so to be mm -hmm. able to motivate pupils we need to 
be motivated teachers of mathematics. Um, so looking at in initial teacher education, we're very aware that a lot of our students, um, they will have to have qualifications, of course, to a certain level, but they still might have um, anxiety, maths anxiety, um, and their attitudes to mathematics are something that we have to look at because if they've got those sort of attitudes towards mathematics, it will have an impact on the children. So it's important that we do look at our students' own subject knowledge and we help them to develop um, their own subject knowledge, actually, by including that in some of our sessions and showing them different ways of doing things. Um, and explaining to them that, yes, there will have been gaps in their education somewhere that maybe have not been filled in, as it were. So if you try and teach maths and you've had a gap earlier on, you're going to find it hard to progress. Um, and they often talk about teachers that have been a barrier, which is a real shame um, to hear, really. And I think all teachers would find that upsetting to hear. But that can be the case if you're moving through a curriculum too quickly and I think some of that sorry secondary people but some of that can happen at secondary it's very difficult I suppose if you've got lots of different primary schools coming up to you with different ways of doing the maths and then you've got to try and fill all the gaps that might be happening um so I think that's that's hard with our with our primary teachers. So we have to start to look at that first. So we do a lot of work around developing subject knowledge um, and also teaching them how to teach. So we do a lot of work on number actually, just to really um, support the students with how they teach it, but it's also actually teaching them strategies as well. Um, and the importance of knowing your multiplication tables. <laughs> Um, um, I'm just going to read out a quick note from our sponsor tonight, Pearson Edexcel's new student centres, French, German and Spanish, 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learns language knowledge, their assessments are transparent, accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills through inclusive and relatable content. The new Pearson MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. And listeners, you can find out more at gov.pearson.com forward slash MFL. Um, and that's just to try and focus your thinking a little bit further um, around we're talking about maths at the moment, uh, talked about what you enjoy, particularly about teaching maths and how we prepare the next generation. But if you were to describe a really great maths lesson, um, what would that look like? OK, um, now, and that's a really hard, that's a really hard question because um yeah, I suppose it depends what you're what you're looking for in that maths lesson. Um, mm. So I'd want to see that the children being motivated and engaged. I'd want to see them. Um, you've heard of the five big ideas for teaching for mastery. I know you have. <laughs> um, so yeah, one of them yeah. is mathematical thinking. I'd want to see them engaged in mathematical thinking, and that would be possibly through talk and conversations um, and allowing them to have that talk and not rushing them through that and um, starting off possibly with some sort of problem solving activity and and seeing how they might reason and provide 
um, rationale for their answers. Um, I also think it's important that we see children achieving because we want a can-do attitude in maths, mathematics, I always call it. Um, so we want to see our children achieving. So I think we have to provide them with that sort of experience at the beginning, something where, do you know what? We can all do this. And that will help to develop that little bit of self-efficacy, that confidence at the beginning, so that children would then move on to more uh, challenging problems. And it's, again, we talked about culture. We've talked about it a few times now, but this is a different culture. This is a, a, a mathematics culture where it fits in with all the other sort of culture that we want in our classroom, that our children can make mistakes, that we work together, we're a team, that we trust each other, that we can support each other. That Do you know what? If I make a mistake, that's okay. And I can go, do you know what? I know that's wrong now, but I'm not sure what I've done. And I think a teacher modelling that, modelling thinking, modelling, you can model problem solving, but I'd rather, uh, sometimes people say you teach problem solving. I know we have to teach problem solving sort of strategies, but sometimes if you model a problem before doing another problem, you actually, I don't think it's a good idea. Mm. I think sometimes it's nice to present the problem, see how the children can work on it and then say, well, this is one way of doing it. This is how I might do it and showing your thinking. So a great maths lesson is obviously, you know, the teacher knows where they want to go. It's been well planned. Uh, these are some of the things that we talk to our students about that, you know, what exactly did you want them to learn? How are you going to get there? What are your steps to success? I can talk about all those things, but yeah. actually what I'd really want to see is a lot of thinking, a lot of talking, a lot of conversation. And mm. it might be unfinished part two, you know, why do we always have to finish things? It might be, do you know what? I want you to go away and think about that. I yeah. want someone to come and find out another way of doing it. And I know we've got schemes out there and I'm not saying anything against those things. They're, they can be very well structured, very well planned. But it's quite nice sometimes to, you know, um, to try and do sort of like to have your own spin on some of those things as well. I know they're very well considered, these the schemes out there. Um, but what I don't see enough of, I think, at the moment is... Um, taking the children outside of the classroom because we talk about teaching for mastery we talk about seeing maths in different contexts um, so it's the idea of maths in a cross-curricular sense as well so there's there's yeah. quite a few things that there's so many things uh, the teacher is your best resource at the end of the day so it's all about questioning as well I have to say the best maths lessons um, has a teacher that's got really good subject knowledge that can ask the right questions, that can build on answers, that can clarify misconceptions. And that's the main thing, really. And interestingly there, I was just at my, my follow up question to that was going to be about um, planning misconceptions uh, in the lessons. I wonder if you have any thoughts around how teachers can do that um, and what it might look like and the reason why teachers might choose to, to use misconceptions in their lesson. Yeah. Um, so so really for our for our students as well, um, if you're a novice, you need to find out what the misconceptions might be. Mm. And, and that's important that our students know that 
actually at this point in time, I'm not sure what they might be. I've got a little bit idea of an idea because of what we did in our session in mathematics. So for example, when children are counting, they might they might miss a number, they might count something twice. So looking at very early years, they'll know those sort of misconceptions. When it gets to maybe um, more tricky maths, they might need to ask the teacher, what could those misconceptions be? Um, and how can I plan for those? Sometimes you're learning on the spot um, and you'll find children are doing something and you'll think, oh, they've done this a few times now. Mm. Um, so that's spotting a misconception as it's happening. And that's about having the confidence to stop a lesson, isn't it? And, and look at it. But it's also having the subject knowledge to know it's a misconception too. Yeah. Um, it, I think it's quite tricky that planning for misconceptions when you're, when you're novice. And even when you're, you know, after teaching a class for a while, you'll know the sort of mistakes that they might make. If that, and sometimes it's the questions that you ask. It's like, is that question clear? So am I causing the misconception? <laughs> you know, or am I teaching a misconception? So it's very yeah, important. And there's a difference. And I think when, you know, you're right, when used deliberately to reveal the structure of maths, they can be really powerful. But actually, we don't want to teach the children a misconception so that it gets really ingrained. Something that comes to mind, two things come to mind, really. Um, I've seen teachers uh, kind of tell children that when you make a number 10 times big, you add a zero on, which is great for, you know, children in key stage one. But as soon as they're in key stage two and they start working with decimals, that's not always the case. Oh, no, no, no. Um, it's, a, it's a real no. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, no, I can't. No, no. You just have to say no. Sorry, um, we cannot do that. We're not adding a zero. <laughs> And the other one is in a in actually a room full of adults um, on why vocabulary in maths matters. Um, I, I can recall asking um, a colleague to tell me the first four numbers of their telephone number, their mobile telephone number, which started with something like 0874. Um, but uh, that was kind of how the, the, the session had started. Um, I had to draw attention to the fact that O is actually the name of a letter and not a number. And if we're yes, going to teach children, yeah, so, <laughs> you know, around that, actually, it's a zero. And yeah. it's something that I'm very conscious of if um, if I'm telling someone my telephone number or, you know, anything like that. It's always a zero and not a no, yes. because language does actually really matter. And I think that's a common theme through not only what we've spoken about yeah. with maths but actually being an anti-racist educator language matters and how you phrase things absolutely matters mental health and well-being in school the language the culture that teachers are setting again um it comes back to the vocabulary and the language that you're using in school and trauma-formed approaches as well and, ma and managing the behavior of children again comes back to the vocabulary the language which is being used in school um, um sorry can i just say as well uh, we've hardly touched on what it means to be an anti-racist educator and i feel like i've not done that the justice that I could do. I'd need a whole day to talk to you about that. I, I would like to recommend, though, a very simple book for teachers that is Diversity in Schools by Benny Cara. And I think it's such a it's a it's a small book, but it's beautifully written and mm. it's very accessible. Um, it's spot on. Um, that's that's been my little go to, actually, 
Um, even though I thought that, oh, yes, I'm being an anti-racist educator, you know, I realised that actually you've got a lot to do as well, Manaz. Just because you're called Manaz Siddiqui, you've still got a lot to do. And to think about being the anti, anti-prejudice, anti it's not having any sort of um, discriminatory sort of practices. Mm. Um, yeah, sorry. And when you talked about zero before, I always remember saying to, someone saying to me, you know, when you counted up doing the multiplication tables, mm. um mention zero at the beginning because I yeah. think I just jumped into two four six yeah yeah and and it was like such a good point yeah. it, was in, it was in my lesson notes but I didn't do it you know yeah. so really important that you take advice as well absolutely um, you can show that you make mistakes and maths a great lesson is showing that you can make mistakes too um yeah so important yeah so important to to make mistakes and you know if you have had the the opportunity to be in one of my lessons i'm sure there'll be plenty of mistakes to um to pick up on um and the children are always very quick to kind of to tell you uh, oh, yeah. mistakes that have been made Um, just going back because you said um Manaz there about uh there was a few a few other things or a lot more actually that you wanted to, to talk around anti-racist um education is there anything um that you would like we've got maybe a few minutes left before we start and uh wrap our conversation up um if you anything else that you would like to kind of mention things that you may have missed that you feel are important now is your time um and we can talk about it I mean, there are there are so many things that I could talk about, really. And I think it's about thinking um, about why it is why it is so important, really. Um, and looking at the world that we're living in at the moment, because I mentioned earlier on when I was a class teacher um, a year before I became a class teacher, actually, Stephen Lawrence was murdered in a, a, a racially motivated murder. And you will have heard of that um Mm-hmm. incident you know um it always has a huge impact on me and it had a huge impact on our you know race uh, relations policy was amended and that happened in 2000 mm-hmm. um and it was the mcpherson report that did talk about how the police had been institutionally racist and i do remember at this time a huge sort of reform within education i was and this is just quite interesting in itself. I was in my first year as an NQT. I was made the um, the Equal Opportunities Coordinator. Mm. You know, there's a little bit of a, a laugh there going on in the back of my head because Manal Sadiq is the Equal Opportunities Coordinator in her first year of teaching. I was also the RE Coordinator because, of course, I was going to know about every world religion. I'm saying that a bit sarcastically, as you can tell. But it was... It was interesting for me because I got a lot of training as well um, at that time. And then 23 years on from that, from 2000, you know, you've, well, 20 years on from that, you've got the murder of George Floyd and you've got this sort of wave again of this sort of, you know, this is important in education. And I'm thinking, but how, how have we moved on? Have we actually moved on? And then you look at the news today and you look at, um, the cricket is a sport and you think oh well you know what They're talking about cricket being institutionally you know racist sexist and what have you that's in the news um it, and it's not just that the police report from baroness casey that shows that 
the police are. This is in her report, isn't it? Um, institutionally racist, misogynist mm-hmm. comes out in that report, doesn't yeah. it? Um, and I think there's something else that I might be missing out there. But so I, what I'm saying is it's really important that as educators, we can make, hopefully we can make a difference. I think that's what it's about. And I know I'm talking about an anti-racist curriculum. I'm thinking of all those other protected characteristics where there's a lot of discrimination. So it's just, it's really thinking as a teacher, what are the resources that I'm using? Why am I using this book? Is it because it's always been used? Is there another book that I could use that might be better uh, representation for my class? Um, If I'm using Hand as Surprise, for example, it shows me a very limited view of Kenya. What actually does Kenya look like? And, And if you look at Kenya, images of Kenya, you'll see all of these, like, Um, high-rise buildings and that's not the image you get if you look at that book so it's thinking about your choices like we talked about misconceptions in mathematics are we teaching misconceptions about other people about religions Mm -hmm. about how cultures may practice their religion how people might practice their religions so it's it's really thinking about that and actually let's look at the word race really and racism and what it means it's having tricky conversations with children um, and and teaching children how to have those conversations i do like philosophy uh in the classroom for um communities of inquiry philosophy for children you might have heard of it gives children a caring way to talk to each other but it needs to be facilitated obviously by a very experienced teacher if you're having some tricky conversations some people might dispute that as a method but i think uh, as a teacher if you can manage and have some sort of input as well it's important um and that it's important that a teacher has got is able to facilitate some tricky conversations as well Um, do you see where i'm coming from here so it's about really looking at your curriculum and as david olusaga would say i think i might have said his name wrong david olusaga with the he talks about black and british and you will have seen him on television Mm -hmm. um he talks about what is actually published out there we need more um publishers that from diverse communities we need to have more books that teachers can go to if they want to look at a different topic in history our curriculum has non-statutory recommendations that doesn't mean we have to do those things those choices um so i think it's really important that we think of our some people might say yes but we don't in our school we we don't have these different communities well even more so that you should be looking at preparing our children for to be global citizens yeah do you see where i'm coming from now so i didn't i mean those are the sort of things that teachers can do it's look at what you're doing think of your choices and think why am i doing that why what perspective am i looking at this from so I was looking at the Aztecs many years ago. I'm talking many years ago, nearly 30 years ago. And even then, as a 23-year-old, I thought, this is a very... uh, The view of the Aztecs is making them seem like real aggressive warriors. I thought, I wonder what we were doing around this time. And it wasn't too far away from the time when, you know, Henry VIII was chopping off the head of his wife. So Mm. I think if you can sort of make comparisons, how would you feel, children, if someone... Um, came to to the, to our to where we are here in Liverpool, and they said, "This is my country now. 
you know how would you mm -hmm. feel and trying to get children to think about things in a different way so yeah I know I've got loads more that I could say as well um but I think I'm tired now as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I get a real sense of, of your real passion and flair for this, uh, Minaz. And um, you've, you've talked really um, eloquently and, and thank you for sharing oh, some you. of your own thoughts and experiences um, into topics that are clearly run very deep with you. Um, Thank you for uh, all of our listeners for joining us on the uh, Late Show tonight. And uh, thank you to my very special guest, Manaz Siddiqui. And um, I look forward to speaking to you uh, again very soon. Take care. All right. Thank you very much. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.